Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer Podcast. Today, I'm being joined by Matthew Hayes, who is the farmer at, I'm going to work at pronouncing this correctly, Jambaki Birokat in Hungary. Um, Matthew grew up in a wild, large garden and developed a deep love of the outdoors. He spent a number of years um, in the UK. Um, he was an apprentice at Tablehurst farm in the UK in 1997 and many other different um, farms and locations. And in 1995, ended up in Hungary. So um, yeah, so that's where they are. In 2010, they set up their new farm, which is a small commercial market garden running a web shop based box scheme with a weekly stand also at the Budapest Organic Market. Between 2016 and 2018, Matthew returned to England to work for Ruskill Mill Trust and set up a rooftop biodetensive garden in the middle of Birmingham, providing food and education to young people with learning challenges. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Uh, Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Uh, Good to join you. All right. And uh, did I get the name mostly right, partially right? Uh, Pretty close. Yeah. Jean Bucky Biocat. Okay. Jean Bucky. Just, just one correction that, that I was at Tabor's Farm in 1984, not, uh, so way back, yeah. Okay. Uh, 84. I was an apprentice uh, for a year and a half, yeah, a couple of years. Yeah. Gotcha. Very cool. So talk to us, give us a little bit of an overview of uh, your farm as it is right now. Yeah, the farm as it is right now, it's a small uh, market garden, uh, or, or rather it's a market garden on a small farm, I'd say. Um, we've got uh, about 2,500 square meters, that's, I don't know, 20,000 square feet of uh, uh, polytunnel. And okay. we've, got, we've got about a hectare of outdoor vegetables. That's, that's what we kind of have an income from. Uh, mm-hmm. And beyond that, we've got, we've got, uh, a few kind of bits and pieces which increase the biodiversity of the place. We've planted some uh, woodland, far, far, basically for firewood and biodiversity. Um, we've got we've got a horse which we work with. Um, we've got we've got a small herd of sheep <laughs> which we started working with. So we're trying to kind of establish a, what I would call a, a very sm- a micro mixed farm, which is kind of sitting in the background of and and in a fertility sense supporting the the uh, organic vegetable production very cool okay so that you got the vegetable farm and you got the sheep and the horse now what kind of things does the horse do on the farm yeah well when we started 10 years ago here i've worked on a lot of different places you said in introduction but uh, also in hungary uh but when i, I we started our own setup here uh I was very keen to work with horses. I had a, a, a friend colleague who, who kind of joined me at the, for the first couple of years. Um, and we had, so we had two horses and then we were doing everything basically with a horse. Uh, um, but we, as we kind of moved across to a bio-intensive permanent bed system, the horse doesn't really fit that well into that system. Mm-hmm. Um, but hauling, hauling compost, uh, uh, some cultivation we do we grow potatoes in a kind of row crops out the back um, and the horse can be great for that um, so we we like working with the horse I'd, I'd kind of call it a a, a useful hobby rather okay. than a, yep. a, a kind of um, a very economically viable way to farm um, <laughs> uh, but but you know there are situations um, for example in the in the polytunnel uh, it's you know, when you've got plants growing in there or hoop house, what you call, um, uh, going in with a horse and a, and a, and a horse and cart, carting the compost, you're not spewing out uh, gas fumes um, uh, while you're in there in the uh-huh. polytunnel. So it has some very useful side benefits, not to mention the manure that you get from the horse as well. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, if you look at it from a kind of permacultural point of view, you know, 
many many uses um, uh, that, that the horse has. Also, you know, from a social point of view, uh, as soon as people come onto the farm, most people are immediately kind of drawn to you know go and talk to the horse. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. All right, talk to us a little bit about um, horse-drawn implements and equipment. Is that readily available over there? It's interesting. Very good question. When I when I got interested in horses and, and started reading about it, it was through the Small Farm Journal, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, which uh, I, I, I managed to get hold of by chance through someone. Um, so actually, interestingly, most of my kind of early knowledge and reading came from from the U.S. Um, I got in touch with, uh, uh, I wrote a couple of times to Eric Nordell. I don't know if you know. Um, uh-huh, absolutely. Who, 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 uh, Eric and Anne Nordell, uh, who work incredible, do fantastic work with horses. And I'd read a few articles with them and I, I wrote some letters to them. And they said, what on earth are you looking <laughs> for information and, 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 uh, and um, even equipment over this side of the Atlantic? Um, you know, they visited Hungary in probably in the early 70s. Um, okay. And, and it was full of horses. But in the meantime, it, I came in 95 to Hungary. In that 20 years, horses have pretty much disappeared off the agricultural landscape. Um, wow. So, uh, I mean, you can pick up old plows and things, but the, the equipment that you can get here is pretty rudimentary and pretty old. Um, uh, and there's no one really working with horses. The... They, there's a little bit of um, forestry work with horses. The the um, forestry commission have a have a kind of a few teams of horses uh, where it fits in with their uh, uh, they're kind of bringing wood out of difficult slopes and stuff. But uh, basically, no one's working with horses anymore. A few people have horses and carts, and then there's le- leisure horses. So, uh-huh. it's, but we a few years ago we were involved in the project. I worked for a long time at. Um, at the Goodall Agriculture University, um, Centristrand University, it's called now, uh, which is a town sort of 20 miles from here. Um, and we had different projects that were going. And one was uh, a European project with various partners. And one was a, a, called Promota. They're a, an organization in France that, uh, in the foothills of the Pyrenees who produce. Uh, Horse modern uh, horse horse equipment, so yeah, uh, uh, horse drawn equipment, uh, and we bought through actually through that project we we managed to kind of acquire by uh, what they call a cussine, which is a small. Um, it's designed for for uh, ridging up the crops which which work on a on a ridge like potatoes, or you can do you know corn like that. Um, and uh, we started using that. And I, I also went to France and trained for a week on on uh, one of their trainers' farms and learned, you know, kind of basics uh, with that tool and also with the horses. So we work we work with the custom system, which is a very nice, very low tech, but very flexible, versatile. Um, does a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very cool. And then the sheep, are they used for the wool or is it for the meat? Uh, the sheep are a new, a new thing. That, uh, but I am planning to, or we are planning to uh, expand a little bit with the sheep. So we've only got a few right now. Uh, we won't get big. We don't have that much land. But uh, initially, honestly, to keep, keep the grass down and not have to use a, yep. a, a scrub cutter for, for um little edges and verges we can go around with the sheep but i'd like to build them up a little bit so we get some some manure from them i think there'll be meat honestly uh yeah uh, and possibly if we in the longer term if we can find a good market for fleece like, uh, and for wool but we're not they're not a very uh you know very, not a very significant enterprise in themselves they're more they're more of a kind of useful, <laughs> useful gotcha uh, byproducts and, and, and keeping the grass down in, in odd little areas. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about uh, the CSA, because over there you call it a box scheme and share with us a little bit about how you have that set up. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a bit of a background with CSA. Mm-hmm. We were the first, um, when I worked at the university and we set up a, a student farm 
1998. We also set it up with the intention of, you know, kind of testing out in Hungary, trialing in Hungary CSA. So we were the first CSA in Hungary. Um, uh, when I say CSA like that, it's a, a kind of, you know, card carrying, uh, uh, prescribed kind of method of shares and, and the commitment from consumers. Uh, we don't work like that anymore. Our experience was that, you know, getting people to commit in advance to a, a year's harvest um, is asking quite a lot of our consumers. Um, when we started up, people were very ready to do that uh, in our local community because there were no, basically no other options for getting organic fresh uh -huh. vegetables. Um, but as things have kind of developed here a bit more, uh, you know, you, the, the, the kind of... Uh, uh, what would you call it? Kind of full, fully fledged CSA, which is asking for you know a lot of commitment from the consumers. Uh, we find not flexible enough, honestly. Uh -huh. um, it we can't provide enough kind of customer service through that um, to make it viable. Other people seem to manage. I think it's you know it's a bit of a personality question how much you you're yeah. willing to sell you know sell that and and really put a lot of time and effort into building that consumer community. Um, but we find that a box, a kind of more flexible box scheme where you can basically buy each week when you want, there's no there's no prior commitment, um, works better for us. And since we started, uh, uh, so we work our box system off a, a website. So it's um, off a web shop uh, kind of platform. So uh, you can you can either buy a, uh, a small or a large fixed box, or you can select what you want in a box for a minimum order um, amount. Uh, and we found ever since we introduced that that flexibility where you can basically order from a, a seasonal selection of what's available, that became much more popular. And, and we almost sort of stopped our box system a, a few years ago until we hit on that and um, it's kind of transformed it for us. Uh, so, you know, I think the, for us, the key was to, to become much more kind of customer friendly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So talk to us about your background. I know that you have an extensive history, you know, across Europe with, uh, you know, yeah. apprenticing and uh, and that. So give us a little bit about that and kind of like what were some of the things you learned through all that? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I started out actually as a woofer in 83. I was working in London and I wasn't enjoying my job very much. I'm, I'm much more adapted to being an outside, outdoor, huh. physical, working type person than indoor office type person. Um, so as soon as I hit on, I, we went a few times with a couple of friends to Table Farm, and as soon as I discovered that they ran an apprenticeship scheme then, I, I kind of moved over there. Um, and that was, that was immediately I found that's what I need to do in life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so then from there, I kind of moved around. I've always had a, a belief that um, farming is is um, a vocation. Uh, but, uh, you know, farms are uh, the best kind of farms or, or the potential for farms are as social centers. Um, so, you know, through farms, we can transform the impact we have in, on our environment. And we can also, in a we can have an impact socially as well on what we're doing locally. So I've always been interested in the, the environmental uh, benefits of, you know, sustainable farming, whatever system you want to call it. Um, I mean, I, I started on a biodynamic farm and maybe we can talk about that, but uh, that's interesting itself. Uh, but uh, also, you know, the social value and the therapeutic value of farming. So I always thought, you know, I wanted to combine a kind of social benefit with environmental benefit and making a business of it. Um, uh, so through my kind of farming career, I've worked on different places, different projects with different kind of, if you like, target groups of people who, who were there for some sort of social social development uh, uh, um, aim. Uh, so 
I would, after I'd worked at Tablehurst, I worked on a city farm in the middle of London, a very small farm, tiny farm, um, where we had a little vegetable patch and a few goats, oh, quite a few goats actually. Um, and then I moved, uh, I went to New Zealand and Australia. I worked over there and worked on different farms. Um, then when I came back to England, I, I lived, uh, this was about 90, 1989 to 1992. I worked on a really interesting project working with, uh, with the Camp Hill movement, which I don't know if you've come across in the US. Um, it's quite big in the UK and it was, and, and Scotland, it was, it started, um, where their communities uh, of, uh, of um, uh, working with people, living communities with people with uh, uh, special needs, adults and sometimes children with special needs, and living in a, a farming community. Um, so agriculture is always an important partner in that. And we had a really interesting project. I was not employed by Camp Hill. I wasn't a Camp Hill member. I was actually living in, in the community, but I was had an outside paid job as a, as a kind of training instructor for a, a group of unemployed people. So we had really interesting kind of uh, symbiosis going on between, uh, or synergy going on between a group, a group of, young adults with, with uh, educational special needs and um, and a group of older, long-term unemployed, uh, mostly men, one or two women in that group, who who uh, who were there to kind of learn a new skill. Um, that was very, that for me was very interesting to see how, how, how um, these different kind of social different kind of social needs groups could could benefit from each other um, through the work through the agriculture work I mean I think I think farming and horticulture are, you know are kind of almost unique in their in their therapeutic uh, potential mm -hmm. there's so many tasks that can be done on a farm uh, for any ability range you know from the simplest uh, task of you know raking up leaves or, 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 or carrying boxes here and there to, you know, complex managerial tasks, which uh, we all know about. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Speaking of that, there are always endless tasks to be done on the farm. How do you keep yeah. everything organized? <laughs> yeah, I'm having to learn. I, I, I'm a bit of a slow learner. I have to do things about 10 times to get them kind of happening inwardly for me. Uh, uh, and that's kind of been a theme, I think, in my whole kind of farming career. I'm just that kind of person. I, I need to learn by my mistakes, and I need to make the mistakes several times, and then I learn them well. Um, so I, I started out as as a more of a idealist than a than a manager. <laughs> you know, for me, in the, I, I think it's interesting to look back as well, because a lot of, in the you know when you went into organic agriculture in the 1980s people thought you were a nutcase and you probably were a nutcase. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, my motivational reasons for farming were, were very idealistic. Um, I didn't have much idea about business. I didn't have much idea about how to manage uh, a farm or even manage people. So it's been a long, a long, a long kind of process of, of learning how to do that. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm still learning about the importance of processes, uh, but the last few years on our own farm, uh, we've we've a little bit, you know, uh, fast tracked, <laughs> uh, you know, some management methods. So for us, uh, having weekly meetings is one of our most important tools for for uh, everyone, you know, communicating well and keeping in the picture. And we we have a, a kind of continuously updating task lists which people work from so uh we find it difficult to have a morning meeting because just the way people arrive at work we, we don't have a kind of fixed time when everyone arrives at that time so it's better to work off a, a task list and, and just kind of uh talk about things off the list as people come in and and people are aware of, of the tasks that need to go on and there's a lot of you know fixed routines which which help the the uh, you know ordering the the daily tasks. 
Uh -huh. So we have a quite a quite fixed weekly routine with the boxes and harvesting and markets and that sort of thing. Gotcha. So one day is really devoted to something and that's just how the, the week works. Yeah, yeah. So so I mean Mondays is a day when we get a lot of you know in the in the season keeping crops clean uh uh and also sowing new new crops. We we have a we have a team that uh is is kind of pretty much dedicated to harvesting. Um uh and and a couple of other people who are more kind of on the on the cultivation planting sowing side of things um there is a, a crossover but but we found over the years that it works better to have um people a little bit specialized on particular tasks it just works better for us with not with everyone some people need that that you know across the board uh opportunity to 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 have the varied um work but some people actually prefer to have a fairly kind of narrow focus in their work. Um, that's our experience. Uh, so Tuesdays are a big harvesting days because we pack boxes on Wednesday. So Wednesday is a big box packing day and preparing stuff, bagging stuff, boxes. Um, and then Thursday, Friday is again harvesting for, we have a big market on Saturday in Budapest. We've been going for under different kind of names for the last 20 years to the um, organic market in Budapest, which is quite a thriving market. It's actually the biggest organic market in Central Europe. Um, uh, it's a bit kind of concentrated in one market uh, on one day, but that's we've been going there for a long time and that that's part of our routine, yeah. Okay, and um, in that market, how many vendors? Yeah, there's about, well, it's mixed. So vendors is uh, the correct term. There's about a hundred vendors there. Um, uh, probably about. It certainly used to be more than fifty percent were producers um, or growers. Uh, I would say it's it's uh, around fifty percent, or probably more like slightly less than half producers. There's slowly, more and more. Uh, traders that are working there as vendors on the on the market, but but there's still a good a good spread of um, producers and you know all kinds. I mean, a whole, the whole kind of range of, uh, of of food that you can think of, from meat to dairy to grain to uh -huh. vegetables, fruit. Yeah, so it's a really good market. Yeah. Now, is that set up as a producer only, so you have to grow it, or is it more of a, a little bit more lax? You can bring stuff in. Yeah, it's not a farmer's market as such. Okay. So it's 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 you know it sets itself up as a as an organic market. So traders are welcome. Um, uh, uh, as a producer, yeah, you can also we do trade. I mean, we are part of our our system is being able to get. Uh, good quality produce from other organic growers um so we and we also we trade at the market we're quite focused on our farm on on um on the more you know salad leaf vegetables we grow pretty much everything over the season but but bigger vol relatively bigger volumes in the in the fresh green leaf stuff because that we find really complements the boxes that's much more difficult to get fresh at the last minute to, to put in our boxes. Um, so it works better for us. And because we work effectively by hand with most of our stuff, um, you know, financially as well, economically, it's much better to focus on those high value crops. Um, and we can buy in potatoes, carrots, onions through, oh. through the, through the winter. I mean, we, we do early carrots, early potatoes. Only onions, but but the, the kind of later main crop we we buy in from other producers. Mm, okay, let's talk a little bit about your soil fertility. Now, I believe you're more of a bi biodynamic, correct? Yeah, well, that's in my background. Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, I'm not I'm not a kind of a dogmatic. Uh, <laughs> uh, in Hungary, they say vashkalab. Uh, it means uh, steel helmeted. Uh, <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, um, but person. so I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not absolutely, you know, dogmatic about it, but I, 
I, I'm, I find the biodynamic method has got some interesting uh, things to offer, particularly if you look at a whole farm system and the kind of fertility cycles and things, there's, there's a lot of, um, I'd say, wisdom in, in biodynamics there. Uh, so, I mean, the central theme for biodynamics is, is to look at a farm as an organism. Um, so uh, it should be a farm as much, ideally, should be a self-sustaining organism from a fertility point of view. Um, so we always look, how can we, how can we bring fertility from our own, own, within our own farm, you know, minimize the inputs from outside. We do buy in, uh, uh farm avenue, um, but then we compost it, um, and we work with three manures and, uh, I would say we, I mean, we have one of the reasons we, Chose the land where we are is it's it's very good land. It's got it's a high fertility soil, um, very nice loam soil, kind of low, uh, uh, chernozo type soil, a dark, heavy uh, soil, but with good good structure. So our basic fertility is very good, but um, you know we, we you know we we try and maintain that and add to it uh, through good amounts of uh, stable organic matter applications through through compost. I'm a big believer in composting. Um, a lot of time and energy <laughs> relatively goes into our composting. Uh, I don't like buying in inputs from outside if we can if we can avoid that. So the compost, do you have a specific way that you make it or yeah uh yeah, we, we, we have kind of static windrows that we, that we, as we get, um, we have our own horse and, and, uh, and the, so the horse manure, it's not a lot, but it, we put that in, mix it in with the farm manure, manure we're buying in, which is basically from, uh, from beef, uh, cattle and steers that someone in the village brings that, uh, twice a week on a horse and cart. So we get two carts a week. And as that comes in, we, we loosen that up. We, we, we form it into a windrow by hand. We've started experimenting with, um, kind of inspired by the, the, uh, Johnson bioreactor, uh, idea. Um, we've started working with putting in, putting the compost, making windrows on, on, uh, wooden pallets, packing pallets, uh, you know, kind of robust ones. Um, so there's a, a bit of airflow from underneath. And then we put in uh, uh, pipes. Uh, what would they be? Uh, Six-inch pipes uh, with some holes in that we, we leave in the, in the compost while we're forming the, the windrow. And then we pull them out. And then we've effectively got a, a chimney uh, airflow going through the, the, the windrow. That's... That we, we, you know, we stole that idea or found that idea through the Johnson bioreactor. We, we, we started off trying to make, you know, the kind of classic, um, uh, meter, meter round, um, or a bit more, uh, system that, that the, the Johnson bioreactor kind of is known for. But we found that that was a bit cumbersome. We're getting manure in kind of twice a week. Um, and we need a much more easy system to, to just load into a, a windrow as it arrives. So we've, we've kind of adapted. We've got a kind of Johnson Barrietta hybrid. <laughs> um, uh, and we cover what I have found and always kind of try and persuade people to be careful of is to make sure we've got some sort of cover on the compost. People, it, it makes an enormous difference if you've got, if you've got a, a, um, a permeable air permeable layer over the, the 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 compost that you're forming um the compost pile we use straw for that but compost covers are good as well um so that there's you know an air exchange there but the compost itself is protected and i think my background with biodynamics kind of uh, gives you that idea that um a compost pile is also a living being. <laughs> um, it's a kind of an organism, and no organism uh, exists without no living organism has 
exists without a skin, you know, a layer that divide that uh, uh, an interface or a, 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 a membrane that that, that uh, is is between the inside and the outside. You know, that's the function that a, a skin or a membrane performs. It divides the inside from the outside. And on a compost pile, you need that you need that skin, which is your cover. Otherwise, you get you get kind of scar tissue forming on the on the manure, the compost material that you're you're building up. It dries out through the wind, through the sun, um, too much rain, and you get you get so you don't get biological activity right to the surface of the of the windrow. If you put a cover on, then then that that inside is protected and and biological activity can happen right to the edge of the pile. All right. So you recommend that cover even for just like a, a pile that's just sitting after it's fully composted? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah. It just gives a little bit of protection. Yeah. 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 I mean, when it, you know, when theoretically when compost is fully stabilized and, you know, it's much more resilient against, but it, but if it dries out, you know, it affects the fertility of that, of that finished compost. So yeah, I think it's always a good idea to have, have finished piles covered as well. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about um, your tunnel production because you've got a bunch of polytunnels there. So talk to us, yeah. through, like, what do you grow in them? And and they're designed, I think they're pretty interesting of the end design. The end design is a little bit unusual. Yeah, the end design, I'm not sure if I, if we were starting again, we'd do that. And in fact, slowly we're changing the doors. And that, that's a, a system that there's a company, a UK company called Haygrove who who started out as fruit producers and they, they found and they, that they started growing stuff, fruit in tunnels. And then they found that, uh, they could, that there was so much demand for the, 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 the kind of tunnel technology that they, they, a large part of their business is now making tunnels. They make, uh, uh, um, what's based on what they call a, a Spanish, Spanish tunnel type, uh, system. So you can actually pull up the sides of the tunnel. The, the, the polythene doesn't get doesn't get uh, uh, dug into the ground. So ventilation is very good in those tunnels. Um, the, the the polythene's held on with with rope or with with uh, line. Uh, uh, the doors the doors on those tunnels are yeah. It's, they, they, it's a Norwegian design, supposedly good for high winds because it kind of cuts down the wind resistance but um and i was a bit worried when we when we bought into that system that we were quite an exposed site and that it would be good to kind of minimize the wind impact because they're quite high those tunnels um but uh they're not totally practical because when you open and close them a lot they the uh the, the polythene kind of wears and you start there's quite a lot of maintenance with those doors um but but the the, the tunnel design is is Otherwise, very good. Uh, nice high tunnels, easy to ventilate, um, low cost, relatively. How much snow do you get over there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> this year so far, nothing. I mean, when I moved to Hungary in '95, the winters were cold. You know, we it was we'd have minus 10, 15, 20 uh, centigrade regularly um and for longer periods so you'd get you'd get kind of frozen right through from end of november through till till middle march but you know we can see very clearly the impact of climate change here and um so we have like this year we've had a few frosts but um no snow at all snow typically comes you know sort of this time of year or, or in January, but the last few years we've had hardly any snow. It's a bit mm. worrying, actually. <laughs> yeah. We, we, you know, we need some, oh, traditionally, you know, farming is used to having cold winters, so people, uh, their systems adapted to that. Uh, so we're experiencing problems with two mild winters. We get a lot of in insect problems. Yes, insects, disease, pushback, you know, it's yeah. all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, so I, you, I mean, typically we, it's not very. It's a fairly dry climate here. We get about um, uh, five hundred millimeters of rain a year. That's relatively spread out through the the year. Um, I can't tell you what that is in inches. If you, 
15 centimeters. I, I can't tell you. It's about 50 centimeters. So four, almost, four, almost two feet a year. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we don't get that in snow. It's um, that's, that's rain precipitation through the year. So snow, we, when we do get snow, it's kind of like uh, six inches kind of more or less, but it can, it can stay for quite a long time. Uh, but not recent, not in recent years. I'd say the last five years we've, we've consistently had mild winters. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your kind of the journey of starting, you know, becoming a farmer and all of that. What would you say along that time period, what has been the hardest thing that you've done? <laughs> uh, I think an in, a, individual kind of incidents I find difficult to say. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of ups and downs and some hard periods. Um, I think consistently for me that one of the hardest things is to become a good manager. Honestly, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, that's not my natural. <laughs> I'm quite, a, what I would say, quite a good leader of, of, of people, but I'm not necessarily good on, on, um, on maintaining processes. Uh, and I have to recognize that in myself and kind of work it into the system and also, also bring other people in who are better at that stuff. Um, I'm a lousy administrator, for example. I hate book, office work and stuff. Um, I used to try to do everything I could to avoid it. I, I realize how important it is, so someone's got to do it, so we, we have to look for that. Um, hardest things uh, uh, had to getting enough sleep as well. I think that's a, a mistake that I made uh, until relatively recently. <laughs> you know, you think you can kind of burn the candle at both ends, you know, get up early and go to bed late and have long days and it catches up in you in the end. Uh, um, but yeah, individual incidents. I mean, there was a, a kind of funny, what? well, looking back after <laughs> 35 years, it looks funny. At the time, it was not so funny, but um, okay, I wrote off a tractor in my first year as an apprentice and I thought I was going to be run off the farm and that would be the end of my farming career, which would have been a big disappointment. Okay. <laughs> but, but luckily, luckily, luckily the farmer took it well and, um, and uh, we all laughed about it afterwards. <laughs> you said but, you burnt it up? Uh, well, I wrote it off. I, I, it, we were moving, um, I mean, it was partly my fault, but to be honest, it was partly lack of instruction at the time. Uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, when, when I say, for example, that I was in a tra- uh, an apprenticeship program when I started on tables years ago, I mean, our apprenticeship program consisted of basically long hours working on the farm for low or, or no wages um, with minimal training. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our training was just doing it and um, making mistakes and, and learning that way. Uh, so uh, it was a bit, that was how it was then. I think it's, it's very different now and it's much more formalized and much more structured. Um, but uh, so we, I was sent on a rickety old tractor with a rickety old uh, uh, trailer to go up, and and uh, we were clearing out the the uh, the animal stables of the winter you know, farm of manure and car- carting it up to the top of the farm. It was quite a hilly farm, uh, and uh, the the we were putting up a windrow kind of on a on a flat bit of land that was perpendicular to a, a very steep slope. Um, and as I as I as I lifted up the hydraulics for the back for the trailer to tip, um, the, the the trailer didn't the, didn't sort of tip completely. So I got off the tractor <laughs> and got on the back of the trailer and tried to start pushing the compost off. And the tractor started moving um, and quickly started moving down the slope. Uh, luckily, I didn't manage to get back on the tractor because I probably wouldn't be here today. If I had. Um, and the tractor just careered down the hill uh, and um, went through a hedge at the bottom and disappeared. <laughs> uh, and I had to go and uh, find the farmer. Um, uh, and, that, and, and I honestly thought that was, <laughs> was probably going to say, well, that's it, mate. <laughs> yeah. So did you uh, end up finding the tractor? Was it salvageable? Uh, yeah, we, we ended up having to you know, dig the tractor out from the other side of a, a kind of a brook that was on the other side. Um, and uh, hauling it out, but uh, yeah, the, the farmer once he got into the kind of the the challenge of getting the tractor out, forgot about how how uh, how he'd lost the tractor. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think in the end they didn't do badly out of it. Actually, I think they managed to claim back on insurance, and it was an old tractor anyway. I think I think 
it didn't it didn't impact the farm too badly but it was it was a it was a bad moment <laughs> yes sure. i can imagine so let's say there was a magic reset button as it relates to starting your farm what systems would you go back and put into place sooner yeah um uh, i think there's quite a lot of things um uh i think uh i think yeah, getting getting cleaner processes, clearer processes earlier on. Um, uh, I mean, it's a difficult question because you know you learn in hindsight, or at least I do. Uh, um, so you know, it's nice to say that we'd lay out the farm in a perfect manner. That you know, the, all of the buildings are in the centre of the farm, and you know, the work goes on around the buildings, and, and so you minimise traffic. But I mean that's not always practical, even if you want to do that. Um, so, but actually, I would say our setup's not bad like that. Um, there's a bit too much walking up and down, but not too bad. Um, but I would say, you know, it's a really good idea to to really analyse your system as much as you can at the beginning. You know, it's a difficult thing with farming that you're you're, you're having to make some of the most critical decisions at the at the, at the start when you have not the experience it will inform you know what you're going to do later so you know it's clever to it's easy to be clever in hindsight <laughs> um yes it, it's, it's not always easy, easy to see into the future um but uh yeah so for us you know things things to put in place early on uh i yeah i think getting getting better processes earlier on uh getting I mean, I, for me, the um, the Lean Farm book, uh, Ben Ben uh, Hartman's book, is has been a uh, a really influential book for me. I think for someone who who struggles with kind of um, order, and I, I we're not. If you look at our garden, it's not untidy, but but I'm not naturally a very tidy, orderly person. Um, but the, as on reading that lean farm book it just you know a lot of things fell into place for me um it made huge amount of sense to me i think it's one of the most uh valuable books of the last kind of 10 years that's come out on farming um uh just just you know having a not just a system but a system that makes sense um and that is also fundamentally i i, I think i suffered for a long time by being too ideologically driven and, and you know, I kind of ruled certain things out just on an ideological basis, like mm. making money or, or being, you know, using kind of clever capitalist management systems. <laughs> it didn't appeal to me, you know, I thought, yeah. um, but, but gradually I'm realizing, you know, that, that actually these are very useful tools. And <laughs> if you want to have a business that works, you know, you've got, you've got to, um, you know, learn, learn good methods and methodologies for that. Uh, and I think for me, the, the lean, the lean system really made sense, um, as much as anything, because I think there's a really democratic human side to lean, which I really like. Um, you know, it's not just doing hard nosed cost, cost benefit analysis, which, um, you know, is all about maximizing a profit and not really looking at, at the, the, you know the, the human benefits or, or not of what you're doing i think lean is really saying you know for lean to work it's got to be a democratic process and these and introducing standard operating procedures uh i think is really valuable you know it takes us quite a lot of time to get there uh but you know when when we have established a really you know standardized clear understandable uh, system that everyone kind of buys into then then that then things work yeah. with that i'd like to stop here and take a quick break in a minute we'll be back with matthew hayes hey thriving farmers have you checked us out on youtube lately we have a bunch of new content there including a few rants by me i uh, want to tell you you don't want to miss them um, i actually go rant about you know some of the problems i see in our space and some of the challenges i see farmers uh, facing so go check that out we've got instructional videos over there as well talk about setting up our new farm here in ohio and all the steps we're going to do that as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for 
all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. We are back with Matthew Hayes um, from um, Hungary. Now, Matthew, talk to us a little bit about the team. How do you set up the team on your farm? Yeah, uh, we started on this farm. I mean, you know, I've worked with different teams over different time periods, but on our own farm now. Um, we started out with um, uh, three of us who were, who were, you know, kind of farmer, farmer owners, but uh, We've, and I was actually working part time still at the university when we started. Um, and we gradually, you know, the first year we purposely were keeping things small. So, uh, we, we were, we were just, you know, testing out our system, establishing our system, getting an infrastructure. Um, but as things sort of moved forward, we, we were lucky because we had a, effectively a, a ready market. We, because I'd been, you know, farming here for a number of years through the university project, I already had a kind of a, a, a group of consumers that were ready to buy from us, which was nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, gradually we, we brought in people, uh, for initially for, you know, like mixed tasks. But as I said a bit earlier, that we're finding that, you know, it's, it fits us better to, to have a team that's built on, on a, on a range of different people with, with kind of different types of backgrounds, um, which I like. Uh, I like having a team. I like being with other people. Uh, we, I would say, if anything, we, we're too many <laughs> always, but, but, uh, that's, that's, uh, it's a way to bring stability into the, into the farm, I think, through having a, a, a number of people who can, you know, there's a bit of buffering there of people who who can take on some of the weekend tasks as well when I'm I'm at the market or we have a rotor or so for for relieving each other a bit at the weekends. Um, so uh, we've got on our team we've got um, six people uh, full time, uh, and we have one or two other people who who come in part-time or who help at the market or we've got a guy who does our deliveries on a on a thursday um so yeah that's that's uh that's how how the team's built up do you have specific roles on the team yeah we do yeah yeah so we've um i mean i would say i'm the kind of uh jolly joker the the one who who kind of solves I mean, is ultimately responsible if things go wrong. Um, but there's so we've got we've got two people who are who are concentrated on on harvesting. We've got one guy who comes in uh, half a day a week. Uh, sorry, a couple of days a week, half a day, who helps with kind of setting up for the box packing and 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 cleaning vegetables and things like that. He's he's retired, but he likes to keep working um, from the village. Uh, and, and we, we're in a village, um, uh, that, that's where our farm is. It's kind of the, on the edge of a, a village. Um, and, uh, and then we've got, we've got a young guy who, who trained, um, who studied at university agriculture and has got interested in, in, uh, in, you know, market gardening, vegetable production, organics, and wants to do that. Um, and, uh, He's he's worked now. He came as a trainee last year for three months, I think, and then we asked him to stay, come back in after his his um, traineeship. And he's already been on the farm now for a year, and he's very kind of able. And he's becoming my kind of, I'd say, assistant production manager. So he's gonna this winter we're gonna you know work together on on the production plans and things. Um, so we, we, he's, and he'll kind of do more or less any task, but he's going to carry some responsibility for the, for the, um, production side of stuff, which will, you know, release me a little bit to kind of work on. We still want to develop infrastructure and we, we don't want to, uh, pay too much to other people to kind of do the infrastructure. So we're trying to do what we can ourselves. And I quite enjoy that, you know, that, that small building type project and, uh, uh, so, so we're kind of 
you know, a little bit transitioning. I'm also, um, you know, in my late fifties. I need to think, uh, what am I going to, what we're going to be capable of in another five or ten years' time. So it's good to bring on, you know, uh, people who who can carry responsibility and and um, some of the kind of management of the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, then we we've got uh, my my wife Kata. She does the um, the orders and the administration for the farm, um, and uh, and she's got a little team who come. who are two people one day a week who come in uh, to help with the packing boxes, and that and that's starting to work very well. And you know, for example, the you know applying kind of lean methods to that system has helped us kind of analyze it and, and make it much more efficient. Uh, the box packing uh, it used to take us. I don't know. Um, two people. It used to take you know, a whole day to to pack. When we have these mixed boxes, so if you pack a straightforward fixed box order, where you've got you, you've got a large or a small box with all the same items in that box, that goes quickly. That's easy. But when you've got when you've got orders coming in from the web shop, which are individual individual box orders with a lot of different products in it that you know exponentially increases the kind of complexity of packing boxes <laughs> uh, so it's much more time consuming so when we introduced that system it was very slow to pack those boxes but we probably cut the time in at least in half if not by two-thirds through just keeping you know going back to it and looking how can we how can we refine the, the process there mm-hmm. and what aspects of refining the process have paid off the most uh, yeah, getting flow through, you know, physically, you know, things kind of coming in at one end of the, of the building, going around the table and coming out, you know, back to go back in the, in the cooler when the boxes are packed. So getting a physical flow through, so you're not kind of going backwards and forwards. Um, mm-hmm. also, yeah, getting, getting everything set up, uh, on, uh, shelves or, or, or tables so that, um, it's easy, you know, there's minimum amount of movement when you're packing, um, and things are there. And the things that you need more of are, are closer to you and the things that you need less of are a little bit further away. Um, and, uh, yeah, so packing is, is a bit of a, you know, it, it, it needs a lot of working at to, to, to get it right. Also getting all of the, all of the things prepped. So, you know, the leafy vegetables that we're packing, they're already in, in, in bags weighed up. So the people that are putting, packing the boxes just, you know, put in a bag that's already weighed. So minimizing the kind of weighing as you're going along, getting that done in advance, that, that reduces time a lot. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, hey, let's talk about, you know, you've been farming for a long time now, so you've probably seen a lot of farmers come and go. What would you say your biggest piece of advice to new farmers would be? Make some of your first mistakes on someone else's farm on their, at their expense or, <laughs> or learn from them and avoid the mistakes in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people too readily, I get, for me, it's, it's kind of like uh, incredible that people would just go out and buy a bit of land and start farming and and uh, then struggle with uh, with the you know the pra- practice of that i mean i think to work on other people's farms learn you know as as, as you know, we hear from different places but you know find the best farm that's doing the kind of thing that you're interested in go and test yourself out there it might just turn out that you it's not for you you know the, the long hours or the cold winters or the hot summers or the whatever it just just doesn't fit how you like to lead your life so i mean it's a very expensive mistake to, <laughs> to um to to go out and buy a bit of land and invest in that and then find out it's it's not what you want or it's not for you um uh but yeah so i think that's that's absolutely critical i mean i would i would suggest to anyone to to, to spend at least you know a couple of years working on different farms getting some experience and find the best people you can to you know work with and learn from uh also i think i made the mistake 
many several times. Like I said, I need it takes time for me to <laughs> learn from my own mistakes. Um, but you know, in the earlier years, I took on too much land. And I think uh, there's always a temptation to do that uh, because it's relatively easy to kind of get a bit of land prepared and sow into it. But it's quite a different thing to man manage and maintain that that piece of land right through the season, keep it clean, and and you know get the crop off it in a in a decent kind of uh, way. So uh, it, for me, that built on experience but I mean I also tend to if anyone ever asks me I would recommend you know uh, take on a bit of land half of what you think you can manage and then half that again and you're <laughs> probably about about <laughs> at a reasonable place to start you know uh, you know divide your your intention by about four and then and then you know it's much better to in the early years especially to have um you know, success on a smaller area, which is, you know, which, which infuses you and makes you want to do more, um, than to struggle with a too big an area and just be drowned in weeds and, you know, never get on top of it and never be able to see the end of it. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a classic mistake, but it, it even, you know, it sort of almost Seems obvious to say, but but I think it, it's very easy to kind of be tempted into taking on too big an area. Yeah. What encouragement would you go back and give your new farmer self? Uh, uh, yeah, don't worry about you know the fact you don't get it right first time. Um, don't beat yourself up too much about the mistakes you make. Just you know learn from them positively. Uh, um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm kind of a bit of a sticker at stuff. I don't easily give up. So I, I wouldn't sort of say I needed to tell myself to just, you know, keep going because I kept going anyway. But I think I would, I would, um, I definitely suggest that I take more rest. <laughs> um, and I'd encourage myself to try and get a better, you know, family family work balance uh, uh, I think for me that I I I I, I, um, I divorced at, at a certain point um, when my first family was um, the kids were still relatively young um, and I think if I look at look back on it you know at the time I, I probably thought um, uh, uh, my first wife was a lot to blame, but in re in in retrospect, you know, I can see how I didn't give that a chance in a lot of ways. That you know, if you're working, I was working on the land, the university land that wasn't where I lived, and you know, so I'd go out early morning and I'd come back late at night, and um, I wouldn't see a lot of the family, and they wouldn't really know what I was doing all day. Uh, uh, you know, that doesn't make for an easy kind of mm -hmm. relationship um, and you know it doesn't doesn't serve the family that well <laughs> you know we're in a much better setup now I've I've got uh, I married again after 20 years of, of you know separation uh, and doing got a new my wife of seven years um, and we live on the farm and that it you know there's a much better family family farm balance um, mm. that's I, I really like that about Ray Tyler, how much he emphasizes the importance of, you know, what he's doing is for his family life. I don't think it necessarily has to be, you know, your own specifically nuclear family, but having, yeah, you know, having time for life outside of farming is, uh, is important. And I didn't honestly do that enough. Uh, and I, I think I stressed myself out a lot through, through, uh, not getting that balance right. Absolutely. If you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool? Uh, I love the um, the wheel hoe. Okay. <laughs> uh, the the uh, we work with the the glacier. I don't know if, you, if it's known yep. as that. Uh, I think you used to have a kind of Planet Junior or something that was uh, uh, a similar design. Um, I think that's a very ergonomic tool, and we you know we still use it a lot. We use it in bed preparation, actually, um, uh, often, uh, if it's as, 
you know, it's just one or two beds we're preparing. We'll we'll broad fork uh, a bed and then go through with the wheel hoe, and then it's kind of ready to ready to go, ready to sew, um, or you know, rake it and then ready to go. Uh, so it's a very flexible and and ergonomic tool. So it saves your back a lot, I'd say. Yeah, I mean my <laughs> my straw hat. <laughs> yes, I can. I, I was brought up in England, and uh, you know it's a different climate here. The, the summers can get quite intense, and uh, I can't work without a hat. Uh, so that's probably <laughs> probably one of the most essential tools I've got. Actually. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, what else? Uh, tools that I really like. Um, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Tell I me. Mean, the Second. wheel hoe, yeah, the wheel hoe. So, which uh, which uh, implements do you like on that? You just use a we, we, we actually just, we use mainly. Um, I mean, we we got one or two attachments and go on it, but actually, we basically just use the the thirty inch. Uh, sorry, the, it will be thirty centimeter, twelve inch blade on it. Okay, uh, uh, the oscillating hoe blade. Yeah. Um, uh, so we we can use that for pathways, keeping pathways clean, and also bed preparation. We don't if we if we if we're hoeing in the beds, we use we use uh, oscillating hose or stirrup hose. I don't know what you call them. The same yep. manufacturer, the glasser hose. We 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 find them very flexible, very useful. Uh, we haven't I haven't tried um, uh, these wire hose yet. Um, I don't. I'm not sure that they'd work that well on our soil actually but it would be good to try them out but it's not so easy to get hold of them here mm. um but yeah yeah so we have a very simple toolkit actually we, we're very uh we're very um low tech um uh but those well-designed robust ergonomic tools are uh are really good yeah um yeah but i like also the um the uh yang Seed drill. That's that's yep. a good tool. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so we we have a homepage or website. Um, Jean Bouquet. It's it's a bit. <laughs> it needs to be spelled out. So it's probably better if there's a link on your on your page. Yeah. Or um, yeah. We'll absolutely so, put a link on the page. So yeah, they yeah, just go to Thriving right. Farmer podcast.com forward slash Matthew Hayes. Yeah, then our website's really the thing. I, what, what I didn't say about our bulk system was um, uh, as a communication tool, we find a weekly newsletter mm. absolutely um, you know, central. Uh, so we, we do that. I didn't, I mean, I could have said it during our kind of weekly routine. I didn't fully finish uh, answering that question. But, um, you know, one of the things that goes on is is setting up the the orders for the following week and 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 preparing customers for um you know what's available and a newsletter is a really powerful tool we find um uh, we get a lot of readership on our newsletter it's quite a lot of people read it who don't necessarily weekly order um we we, we have two sort of sections in the newsletter that are kind of newsy one is more specifically directed at customers um, who, you know, what's available in the boxes, what's seasonal, what we recommend, um, uh, and information on, you know, if some collection point has changed. We, we, we deliver to different collection points, um, mostly in Budapest, but in the locality as well. Um, so, that, you know, kind of practical information. And then we have a what we call farm post, uh, uh, section which is you know news from the farm which um occasionally we put something about someone else's farm kind of a partner farm in there but it's mostly week by week about what we're doing and um and also a recipe we put in each week at least one recipe and we find that they're they're really powerful um communication tools to our customers yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating learning about how you guys are farming over there in Hungary. Um, yeah. it's, it's not that different, yet there are some specific differences that you're, you're dealing with. And so that's yeah. always great to hear that. But thank you for what you're doing and uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Michael. It's great to be here. And thank you for, for the, the work.
what you're doing to kind of spread knowledge to small farmers. I wish wish we'd had that when I was <laughs> when I was uh, starting out. Uh, there's much more information out there and uh, really good good information and training. Yeah. Thank you. Looking to start or grow your farm business? You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target customer and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all that as templates too. So you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step. Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael here. So next week on the podcast, I am joined by Howard Prusik from High Meadows Farm. Now, Howard has been farming in Vermont for almost 40 years, and uh, he is one of those who I always am going to for advice and just bouncing questions off because he's such a, not only a great grower and a great farmer, but also such a good salesperson, good business person, and uh, incredibly sharing of his knowledge. So it's a great interview. Um, it was a lot of fun to uh, just chat with him and, and just talk his journey. I mean, so many years that of what he did, um, and he's just such a respected grower in um, Vermont. And so I wanted to share that with you. and. Tune in next week to hear all about it. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.